I noticed something, and it's a good thing, actually. And that is, I think this is a little bit loud, Jeff. Can we just pull it back? Thank you. That is when we said, okay, it's time for the, the kids to go, uh, as we were doing the offering or that last song or whatever it was when they left, uh, about a fourth of our room left. That's a wonderful thing, actually. Now, if we can just fill that up with more adults and stuff, that would be great. But I, I just noticed that and I thought, boy, why does it look so empty? It's because God's really blessing us uh, in a lot of ways, and we're grateful for that. Lord, we love you. We are uh, we are always amazed at what you do in our lives. and Rarely do you something that we anticipate you doing, other than keeping your promises, of course. But I think oftentimes you just surprise us. Things happen that we do not quite understand, and yet perhaps a few months or a year, or even years down the road, we look back upon this, on those things with a, uh, a new perspective, and we, we see your plan that was unfolding. God, first of all, please forgive us for the times when we doubt. And, uh, and at the same time, God, we certainly do thank you, thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. So, Father, we ask you to be with us this morning as we uh, <clears throat> do our best to open up your word for understanding. And we depend upon your Holy Spirit, Lord, to move in a mighty way within us. He is our interpreter. He is our counselor. He's always with us. So, Lord, um, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, of course, we're still in the book of Luke, and um, we're just going to kind of get right into it. Do you have a scripture sheet? If you got, if you picked up a sheet coming in, then this is a primary scripture we will be talking through. You, you'll also notice there's a, a whole lot of scriptures on the back side of that page. Uh, we are going to reference those scriptures. We're not necessarily going to read all those scriptures, but uh, those are for you to, uh, to take home if you want to, uh, to look at the um, context in which those uh, scriptures are spoken. So we're going to begin this morning by reading a small excerpt uh, from last week's scriptures, Luke 21, 5 through 7. That may not be on your scripture sheet. They may be, I don't know. While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, meaning Jesus, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be torn, uh, thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And what we noticed immediately last week was that the response he gave to his apostles as to when these things would take place in Jerusalem and in the temple, Jesus gave a bit of an unusual answer. At first, it would almost seem like he ignored their question. Now, we studied this last week, so we're not going to get into this part too much. I just kind of want to frame it for today. So they said, when are these things going to take place? And in verse 8, Jesus says this, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. So one of the conclusions we drew from this was that the apostles were focusing perhaps 
on the wrong thing. They were looking at the magnificence of the temple and how glorious it was and how impregnable it seemed to be. And they said, and God said, well, you know, actually all these stones are going to fall down. So their immediate question, and it, by the way, it's a logical question. <clears throat> well, Lord, when are these things going to happen? So at, at first glance, it looks like he ignored their questions. But he was really redirecting their attention to living out their faith in him. And being on guard for imposters and false messiahs so they would not be led astray. Then Jesus began to paint a bit of a picture of what they could expect to see as a time of destruction approached. So we look in verse 10. He says this, And he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And this is where we stopped last week. And it's a good place to point out perhaps a couple of important historical points as we move into these next few scriptures. During Old Testament times, God sent a lot of prophets, some of whom we know their names, probably some of whom we do not know their names, just like there were many other things taking place, but we only hear of the ones God decides to tell us about. And he sent these prophets... And in the Old Testament times, the authenticity of a prophet was established by whether or not their prophecies came true. So it's kind of short term. Now, some of them, Isaiah, Elijah, they gave, Daniel gave prophecies for the end times, what we call the end times. But many of them, in order to say, well, I'm not sure whether I should believe you're a prophet or not, they had to have some kind of proof. So I have some examples. Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12 says this. This was a prophecy. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, And will make it desolate forever. This prophecy was written sometime from 626 to 586 B.C. And it was not fulfilled until 609 B.C. But it was fulfilled in their lifetime. Isaiah 13, 19 says, In Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. Now this is almost impossible for these folks to understand. Babylon was magnificent. It was impregnable. Maybe we would even compare that to the United States. No one can take down Babylon. But here's the prophecy. They will be taken down and they will look like Sodom and Gomorrah. This was written in 701 to 681 B.C. It says, And I will make a and a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water, and I will sweep it from the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. These were fulfilled in 539 B.C. And when predicting the fall of Nineveh, Nahum said this, Nahum 1.10, For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. Now there is evidence although we don't find it in the Scriptures, that Nahum's prophecy was fulfilled 
according to the ancient historian Diodorus Siculus. And the Assyrian king gave much wine to his soldiers. Deserters told this to the enemy who attacked that night. Siculus compiled his historical works about 600 years after the fall of Nineveh. So even to the point where uh, Nahum prophesied what was going to be taking place in Nineveh when they were defeated. That is, there was a giant drunken party. And it came to pass, even to that detail. So as Jesus is giving specific details to his apostles concerning the 70 A.D. destruction of the temple, he is also expanding the scope of the signs to include the tribulation. And this is why it can be confusing sometimes. So Jesus is using the upcoming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple as a means of giving them something they can kind of wrap their heads around. Because the prophecy of the end times is really reserved for John. And then looking back on Daniel. So they will experience this fulfillment of the prophecy prophecy within 40 years of Jesus saying these words. So here's the point. Throughout the Old Testament, and by the way, as long as Jesus was still on the earth, it's technically the Old Testament. Well, uh, all of these prophecies in the Old Testament, you could see that they were being fulfilled on a very practical level. So Jesus is kind of doing the same thing. He's saying that the destruction is coming. And for the Jews, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem was catastrophic. It was just unimaginable. And 40 years later, he saw that happen. So let's read further in Luke 21, beginning with verse 11. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all, for all my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. <clears throat> now, I can assure you that 40 years from the time Jesus spoke these words, as they began to see four years prior in 66 AD, as they began to see Rome beginning to surround Jerusalem, they were thinking about the words that Jesus spoke to them. So they were looking at this prophecy coming to fulfillment, and this should have removed all doubt that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. After all, in those 40 years, do you think they saw earthquakes? Do you think they saw signs from the sky? Actually, they did. And even before. So this was not new 
to Israel. Matthew 27:32 says this, two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hur- hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, "You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in 3 days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God." In the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were there, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. What does that have to do with earthquakes and signs from the sky? Well, Matthew twenty-seven forty-five says this, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. In a miraculous way. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing there heard this, they said, Let's, He's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes down. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And here it is, verse 51. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That was dramatic. And it was miraculous. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They weren't zombies, by the way. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Now, if you had heard the prophecy two days before, Christ is on a cross, and when he dies, he shouts and he gives up his spirit. The the rocks split open, earthquake, the sun disappears, the, the dead are raised from the grave, and they're walking around witnessing. I would say that I would be saying, I think this prophecy is being fulfilled here. And when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified. Would you have been terrified? I would have been terrified. And he exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Hours after Jesus predicted they would see signs from heaven and earthquakes, they saw a sign from heaven and earthquakes. Now, At the resurrection of Jesus, we read this in Matthew 28, 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Another earthquake. And the the appearance of an angel rolling back the burial stone. We could certainly look at these events as fulfilled prophecies. Within hours of the moment, Jesus spoke them. And by the way, that would be true. Just as we might do the same with the following prophecies, it would soon be fulfilled in 66 and 70 A.D. Remember this, Luke 21, beginning with verse 20, says this, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies... 
<clears throat> That's going to happen 66 A.D., 67 A.D. Then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in, um, in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. You remember in some of the description of the battle for the temple. There, was so, there were so many bodies of the Jews dying to protect the temple or to get into the temple. They were piled high until they started rolling off of each other. And the blood was thick. And if you were a, were a woman with child, would you have run to that? So we look at these things and it appears as though these are the events that are fulfilling the prophecies of Christ. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Happened. Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So the account of the desecration of... And by the way, that's a very important term. The desecration. It's a very important term. The reason that's important is because that goes back to Daniel. The account of the desecration of Jerusalem and the temple through the eyes of Flavius Josephus makes it entirely possible that everything listed in verses 20 through 24 happened. Even in verse 23, we could understand the applied meaning of earth to be a very general term used for the purpose of painting a picture of the scope of the destruction of Jerusalem. That was their world. And they certainly fell by the edge of the sword, not only from the Romans, but from one another. There was a civil war going on by the end of that because they were angry with one another that a particular town was not defended by the, uh, the Jews in Jerusalem because they felt it was a hopeless thing. So may I remind you of verse 10. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Israel saw this happening beginning in 66 A.D. So all of these prophecies from Christ could be applied to all that happened within the next 40 years. Let's read on in verse 25. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity. We can certainly say that they saw these kinds of things within the next 40 years. When in world history have nations not been in perplexity? Nations are always in perplexity. We're in perplexity. And what does it create? It creates panic and anger. Concerning the sun and moon and stars, quite frankly, the northern lights would boggle the mind. Not that they ever saw the northern lights. But if you want to begin to capture some of these things and apply them intentionally, that these prophecies were strictly for Jerusalem, you could do that. As a matter of fact, many people have done that. The northern lights would appear to be a miracle. Uh, meteor showers and eclipses would definitely be less than normal. Let's not forget the star that led people to Jesus. That was weird. That wasn't normal. Now, I know that some astrologers explain that, and that's okay. God can use whatever He wants to. But the point is, there was a star that has been identified as a star in the Scriptures for one purpose. 
And that's to identify the geographical location of the Son of God, His birth. But none of those things really struck fear in the hearts of men. At least we don't have it recorded that way. So the following scriptures become even more dramatic as Christ continues on with his words in verse 25. There will be signs in the uh, sun and moon and stars and on the earth the stress of nations in perplexity. And then he goes on. Because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And when they will see the Son of Man, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads. Why? Because your redemption is near. So, in these verses, we see things beginning to transpire that we might relate more to the book of the revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ, which is a full title, by the way, of Revelation. The revelation of the glory. What is Revelation supposed to do? Shows Jesus in his glory. That's what Revelation does. Well, it sounds like that more than the Gospel of Luke, and there's good reason for that, because it's part of the Revelation. The signs and wonders will not be so dismissible. Waves of the sea roaring, which sends people into fainting and panic. These signs and wonders will not be misunderstood as merely a wacky weather pattern or a unique movement of the tectonic plates that will cause the oceans and seas to roar. These are signs and wonders that are supernatural in nature and take place at the command of our Creator in His time for His purpose and ultimately for His glory. So what's Jesus doing here? Well, He certainly gave the Jews in that era a strong message. One that, by the way, they could see unfolding almost yearly, until it culminated in the destruction of what Jesus predicted. But he goes beyond that. As a matter, Well, we're going to get into it here, okay? <laughs> then in verse 29, in the midst of all of this, Jesus gives them another parable. How do we know that? Well, because it says, and he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourselves... And know that summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. This is pretty simple and straightforward, really. He is saying that when you see these things, then you are in the season of the Lord's return. Now, does that mean that there's a certain tree that's going to wither, that God has appointed to wither, and then we can all know that that tree is withering? Therefore, No, it doesn't mean that at all. It's a parable. He's saying when you see the, the leaves on the fig tree blooming, you're going, I think it's summer. And when you see them fall, like in Ohio, we I think it's becoming winter. It's just because God is saying... 
when you see these things, be aware. Well, what exactly will these things look like when he's talking about these earthquakes? There have been thousands of earthquakes, plagues, famines, wars, and rumors of wars ever since the beginning. Well, ever since Adam took the bite of whatever he took a bite of, because that whole point was he was disobedient. So what is so different about these? How can we tell that these are different earthquakes than what we're seeing now? There have been a number of books written on Revelation and... um, Some of them are excellent, and some of them are not so excellent. Um, If I've told you this, forgive me, but I was at a conference, and somebody asked the speaker, uh, who is very famous, why haven't you written a book on Revelation? And his answer was kind of humorous. He goes, well, I don't think you should write a book on something you do not fully understand. He says, quite frankly, I... I wish some other people hadn't written one either. It's a mysterious book. It's also self-explanatory as long as we don't try to understand more than the Scriptures give us to understand. So what makes these earthquakes different? Can I tell you this? If we have an earthquake every day for the rest of our known lives, it doesn't mean that the end of time is nearer other than more days have passed and it's taking us closer. Let's look at these. Here are some of the signs and wonders Jesus is speaking of when we, be, when we come into the season of the end times. Psalm 46, 2 and 3, Therefore we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. When you see the mountains being moved into the sea, don't you, wouldn't you say, that's not normal? Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Nahum 1.5, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Isaiah 24, 19, the earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. Does that sound familiar? Nahum? The earth staggers like a drunken man. It says like a hut. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it and it falls and will not Rise again. Ezekiel thirty eight nineteen. For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath I declare, on that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field, and all creeping things that creep on the ground, and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence, and the mountains shall be thrown down, and the cliffs shall fall, and every wall shall tumble to the ground. Revelation. 6.12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit and when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Would that get 
your attention than the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. Why? What were they so afraid of? Hide from us the face of him who is seated on the throne. Hide from us the face of God. And from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. Three more short ones. Revelation 8, 5. When the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Revelation eleven thirteen, and at the hour there was a great at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And finally, Revelation sixteen twenty one, and great hailstones, about one hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. So we hear there that there is a great significant difference in the trials we have endured up to 2019 and those that will be unleashed by God in the end. What we are enduring now is what Matthew refers to as birth pains. Matthew 24, 7, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. The birth pains that lead to the great tribulation. Now I could say, ladies, what do we know about birth pains? But because I'm a man and would say that, I would be running out the back door because men don't know anything about birth pains. We know nothing about that kind of pain. Thank you, Lord, or there would be no births. We would say, we can't do that. It's over. That's done. Whatever. But ladies, you know something about birth pains, right? They start small, perhaps, and far apart. And then they increase in number and pain until you are in labor. And then the birth. And with that birth, there's typically, depending, great pain that leads to a new creation. I think it's... Marvelous that God chose this example. It's like birth pains. Any lady who ever heard this would say, I, I get that. And somehow, every time I give birth and I say, I'm never doing this again, they bring the baby in, and within a week, you forget about the pain, theoretically, and you have the baby. And perhaps within a year or two, there's another birth. So this is what we know from Scripture. There is a monumental difference in what we can expect to see prior to and during the tribulation than that which we have seen before. So we can draw a conclusion that Jesus was not strictly speaking about the trials of Israel 
in the next 40 years. They were beneficial. If this is true, then what do we do with verse 32? This is kind of the point of the sermon today, because this can be a problem scripture. Truly I say to you, the generation will not pass away until all has taken place. See, if we hang our hats on the 40 years that followed Christ's prophecy for the destruction of Israel and the temple, what do we do with that scripture? Because he's already talking about the, the end times. He's talking about the tribulation. And if that's true, if we, if we hang our hats on that, then we have a problem with verse 32. Because there have been many generations since that generation saw the prophecy fulfilled in 70 A.D. And it's actually natural to assume that these things did happen in 70 A.D. Here's a thought. Jesus was not speaking of the generation to whom he was speaking. Jesus was not speaking of them, even though he was speaking to them. He is speaking of the generation who will see these signs and wonders in the season of his return. Jerusalem was attacked and destroyed in 70 A.D. Some elements of the larger prophecy Christ was speaking occurred on a smaller scale. But that ain't nothing of what's coming. The big message is that Jesus is about to return when we see these signs. Jerusalem will once again be conquered, by the way. So it was true for the 70 A.D., and it's also true for the Jerusalem that's present in the end times. It will be conquered by an attack led by the Antichrist and then destroyed by God himself. Because this world and this universe will collapse in the preparation for the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. That prophecy will be just as significant in the end times. 2 Thessalonians 2 says this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. It's good encouragement. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. There are people in theologies that believe this has already passed. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object or worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? This is God speaking through Paul. He's saying, remember when I was giving you the prophecy in Jerusalem, just before they crucified me and I rose again? Remember, I said, be careful. Do not be led astray. And we dare not be led astray today. 
Verse 21, 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So here's a simple explanation for verse 32. Verse 32, he says, all these things, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. When you look at the word this, it means a number of things. But what it can mean, and the only thing that makes sense, he's, he, he would say it this way. And I say to you, the generation that sees these things will not pass away before the return of Jesus. The, gen, the generation, this generation, not the one I'm speaking to, the one I'm speaking of. The generation that sees these things taking place, you will not pass away until the Lord returns. So there's four quick, th- three th- quick things I'm going to tell you. As we choose our time and how we spend our time, what instruction do we receive from this? Number one, trials create opportunities to witness. Luke twenty one eleven. There will be a great earth, will be great earthquakes in various places, famines, pestilences. There will be terrors and uh, great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesakes. This will be your verse thirteen. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. It's difficult for a wealthy man to tell someone to sacrifice who can't make enough li- of, of a living to have a home. But if you're walking through these things together, there has to be a difference between a believer and someone that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Number two, how we are to respond to trials. Luke 21, 28. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads. Why? Because your redemption is near. We are not to cower in fear when we see these things, nor are we to cower in fear today concerning our culture's view of our holy God and Redeemer. Straighten up and raise your heads. Christians, straighten up and raise your heads. Why? Because our redemption is near. So number one, trials create opportunities to witness. Number two, we are to respond by holding our heads high. Number three, how we are to prepare for trials. Luke twenty-one thirty-four. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. How do we prepare for the end times? What if it's our generation? There's a lot going into that question. Watch yourselves, let your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. So you must be reading the Scriptures. You must be in prayer. You must be in fellowship. We are to prepare for trials. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness, 
for they are like drunk entangled horns, like drunkards as they drink, they are consumed like stubble fully dried. Verse 36 says this, But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Well, there's a whole lot there. And inevitably, someone wants to know, are Christians going to be here for all of this? Well, stay tuned. Stay tuned. This is how you can be sure you're not going to see this. is by receiving Jesus Christ. There are a thousand reasons not to receive Christ in our culture. And if you're not sure what those thousands are, just watch TV for a while or listen to the radio or whatever you normally do, going about fitting into the culture. And by the way, I'm not against fitting into the culture. We have to to some degree. Paul says, you know, I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world. But there are thousands of reasons why you should put this decision off one more time. And none of those reasons come from God. Not one. You may think this is true for you, but it's not true for you right now. And I would say the Bible is always true. The Bible is always true for you. And it's always true for you right now. So the way you rise above this is through the power and the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, what does rising above it mean? Does it mean he just gives us the strength to endure it? Or does he remove us? Well, stay tuned. It gets wonderful. We're not going to cover it in Luke, but we may start covering it in January. Lord, we thank you. And Lord, my fear is not for me, although I'm really not a courageous man. I keep telling you this over and over and over again. But our fear is, is not what we may have to endure for our faith. My fear is there are people that have not yet received you. And they will have no one to lean upon. And Lord, salvation is a very simple thing. It's only complex in heaven. It's simple for us. He's made it very, very, very simple. And salvation is very simply this. That as a person comes to the realization through the power of the Holy Spirit that they do not measure up to the standards that God has on all the people that He will save, as we come to that understanding, that is a blessing and a miracle. And the second miracle is if we were to say, Father, I receive your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, as my Lord and my Savior and my Redeemer. And that's a miracle. And the third miracle is, upon that prayer with sincerity of heart, we've been crucified with Christ. And we no longer live. But Christ lives in us. For the life we live in this body, we live by faith and the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us.
That is salvation. It's a very simple prayer. Yes, Lord, I understand. Yes, Lord, I receive. Yes, Lord, thank you for saving me. And we pray that you pray that prayer if you have not already. We never know when we will be swept away. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love to pray with you if you are in need of prayer. Blessings.